Hello there. I'm Dave. Hi, I'm Manu. And this is It Came From The Newsstand, a podcast about comics, cards, collectibles, barcodes, nostalgia, all of the emotion that comes with it from the viewpoint of two humans that are collectors and sellers. That's us. (laughs) (laughs) It is us. I'm going to jump right into a story. I'm sorry I didn't let you know in advance, Dave, but here comes a quick one. All right. So anyway, hello, friends. Hope everyone's having a nice night or day, week, month, right? Um, But no, I do want to hop into a quick story. And the reason I want to do this is because once we get to talking about what we want to talk about, I'm probably not going to get back to this story, but this was fun. So I would assume many of our friends know that I'm infatuated with this mini Amazing Spider-Man 300, right? Yeah. And it's a really cool book. It comes in a DVD from 2002. I don't know the year. I think you're right. Spider-Man 2 DVD. I have no idea the year, so don't quote me. But let me get to the point. So this this little book's super cool. It's a mini comic book. It has the ASM 300 front, and uh, it says not for resale. It's a fun book. But for some reason, there's this super rare version of it that actually has Web of Spider-Man number one, uh, the cover, printed on the back cover of this book, the Charles Vest cover. And it's amazing to have Todd McFarlane's ASM 300 symbiote suit cover on the front, and then Charles Vest's Web of Spider-Man one, which is like my favorite symbiote suit visual, on the back. I, I took a, a liking to this from the first time I had ever seen this thing years ago. I realized that very few of them have this rare back. And if you look at like a hundred copies of them on eBay, they all have this advertisement on the back. Like uh, I think it's like for a DVD like Men in Black or something like that. And no one has been able to to let me know or find out for themselves even where does this other version come from? You know, why was it made? How was it distributed? And how come nobody knows? And I've had friends do experiments with the the Target sealed versions of the DVD, the Walmart, and apparently even the Kmart. None of them have produced this issue. Anyway, that's not the point. That's just kind of cool to identify, like, why it's rare. But it's very cool that there's a mystery. But here's the point. So Elite Comics, uh, the consignment page, they... Dave's Dave's opinions not reflected on this microphone. <laughs> I I feel like I I need like it's I guess I just have to say it. It's not like I could put like some signage up. No one can see it. But yeah, Dave's got a thing with consignment shops. Everybody knows that I speak for myself and you speak for yourself. Yes, yeah, they do. They do. They know. They know. If if we shared the same opinions, there would not be two people on this podcast because like we say, eh, hell would be the point of that exactly um, yeah and so in any case elite puts up this uh listing a few days ago for 299 dollars. it was a 9.8 cgc graded white page 98 of the mini asm and 23 seconds after its post it got claimed the reason i know it was 23 seconds is because i spoke to the gentleman <laughs> that claimed it and that's what he told me he said it said 23 seconds that i claimed it here's what elite didn't know and here's what the sellers didn't know. The seller didn't know that that back that that book had, because they did include a second picture, was the rare one. The two ninety nine is essentially how much you would sell or your asking price would be for the, the regular one. This one probably could have comfortably been priced at least double, to be honest, because yeah. I still probably would have bought it at double if I had seen it. But in any case, someone, te- um, someone 
tagged me in it like 30 minutes after the post. It had already been claimed. And then I had some fun in the comments section. <laughs> I even I even offered the person that claimed it. I was like $25 to pass the claim to me. <laughs> and, and, and I just thought that was cute. Like I had never even thought to do that before. Maybe I had, but that was my first time doing it. I thought it was funny. And he laughed about it too. And he said, no, I'm not going to. And I said, I wouldn't uh, take that offer either. This book never pops up. And then I proceeded to educate. Sorry, I don't like using that word. Then I proceeded to answer some questions that people asked um, in the comment section about what the book was, and we had some fun with it. So that's not even my story, but the reason that's awesome is because the leap didn't know, the seller didn't know, yeah. and you know we have a community member friend that now owns it, and he's very happy, and uh, I love that kind of stuff. We talk about how that's the advantage. Knowing is the advantage. That's how you come up on stuff, you know? Sure. Or else it would have been priced much higher. And... So a couple of days after that, I get a DM and the DM said, hey, I saw your, oh, I also put a backup claim on the elite comment section just for fun, just for fun. And uh, someone said, I saw your backup claim. I actually have a near mint copy with the Charles Vest back. Are you interested? And my answer is yes, I need pictures and your asking price. I'm interested as of now, you know, let's see if I'm still interested after I see the goods. A night late, a night goes by, and he sends a video of the, the comic book and his asking price. He was he was reasonable. He said, I think it can get up to a nine six. And I looked at it and I thought about his asking price and I said to him, Well, I'm actually not shooting for nine sixes in this book. So I wouldn't be grading this one and I don't want to pay your asking price for that reason. But if you would like to sell it to me for X, which was my counter, I'm in, you know? And he said, Yeah. And so I sent him the money. He ships me the book. The book shows up. I open up the package. And I notice that uh, it's in a Mylar. And it has an E-Gerber fullback, which is how I package mine. And very few people do that. And then I turn it over. And it's got my notes on it. (laughs) This was my copy of this book that a year or two years ago had sold it off into the world somewhere. And it made its way back to me. That is absolutely fucking hilarious. Like, you know, what are the chances that the chances are good, but the chances are good within the spectrum of like a weird circumstance, you know? It's like, that's so hilarious. I, wow. Okay. (laughs) Does this speak to the fact that it's just that scares like there's only a few floating around and they're even making it back into my collect and 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 i also i sold it yesterday so now it's back into the world again so about a year and a half from now you're gonna buy it back from somebody else that's like two more degrees away from the person you sold it to and i'll happily tell that story on our 89th podcast episode and that one will be called it came around again from the newsstand yeah it came back to the newsstand. <laughs> it came back to the newsstand. A podcast about this one fucking comic that Manu keeps selling and it keeps coming back to him. Yo, that voice is amazing. You sounded like a, a news reporter from like a 40s television show. Did they have TVs in the 40s? I don't know, but that sounded great. Maybe early TVs, but definitely radio. Definitely radio. That was super cool. I imagined you in black and white wearing like an ill-fitting suit and talking that way. (laughs) Well, I have another story for you. Uh, You know what's really funny? I'm going to tell a very small anecdotal story that kind of does this. It's not about comics, but long story short, I've been saying this thing. My 
almost my entire life, about 30, oh, 25 years, I say people nice face. And it can mean nice face or it could mean yeah. fuck you or it could mean hello, goodbye. It's the all around thing. In 1998 or 99, my buddy Seth made shirts for his like roller hockey team with this logo and it's nice face and it's like this orange face with missing teeth and wearing a hockey helmet. I think that's what I remember it as. Anyway, mm-hmm. he made up 20 of these shirts. He gave me a bunch. We sold a bunch. He went to college in Ohio. I lived in New York. My brother and my cousin lived in Jersey. My cousin, I think it was my cousin, was at like a thrift store looking through shirts. And he found one of those shirts. And we don't know how it made its way to central New Jersey. Because the only people in New Jersey who had those shirts were my cousin and my brother. And they both owned theirs at that time. We have no clue where that shirt came from. But it was one of our shirts that went from Ohio somewhere to the East Coast and ended up in Jersey. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. I love that. We're all connected. Nothing's real and everything is real. Dude, starting off the episode with a couple of anecdotes? Yeah. kind of dig that. Dude, I'm so glad you waited to tell me about that because I obviously I didn't know about that until yeah, just now. Yeah, so. yeah. I love that. That's fun. Thank you for, for starting the episode off that way. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, last weekend, I went to Rose City Comic Con in Portland. And a homie, Dave Correa, was doing his booth there. But anyway, it was my first con that I went to as a consumer, as a, you know, an attendee in like, I don't know how long, six years. Oh, as a consumer, as an attendee. Not yeah. That. I got you. Yeah, because yeah. I, I was just there hanging out with Dave, but my intention was to buy stuff and network and meet artists and writers and talk to people and you know, we, I met some some legendary creators and stuff, uh, including Stan Sakai and Adam Hughes and Arthur Adams. Mm-hmm. But this is, yeah, my first time buying in a long time. And uh, it brought back memories. It brought back memories of just like, you know, digging through cons and actually buying stuff as opposed to just being this person I am now where I'm just like, oh, my God, this shit's priced too high. <laughs> like, you know, walking around and being like, oh, these prices are awful. <laughs> So you you left the curmudgeon at home when you went to this convention. Yeah, there was one dealer uh, uh, that I spent thousands of dollars with because he just had boxes and boxes of stuff and he priced as you made piles and he was good about pricing. So I kept buying. By the time this episode drops, you could go on my YouTube channel. I will have posted my Rose City Comic Con large video. It's probably going to be at a half hour or so of me digging through comics. So, uh, but it was something that you had mentioned last week to me. We were on the phone talking about the kind of local cons that we used to go to as kids, which had a very different feel. And I said, and I, and you were talking and I was like, Manu, we have to talk about this on an episode so much. So as I think I stopped you from telling me all of this stuff. I think so actually. Yeah. But what, This question is not coming from a standpoint of this sounds good for the podcast. This is coming from Dave wants to know about his friend. Yeah. What local cons did you go to as a kid? Because I want to tell you about the one that I used to go to, but I want to hear about your experience. Oh, cool, man. Um, I I haven't gone to any cons recently. So in the physical sense, I can't draw a comparison, but in the overall like energy, it's just not the same, right? Because- What Marvel has become is this huge... I mean, it was always a 
a great entertainment powerhouse. But obviously in the last 25 years, there's been dozens of movies, millions of like fans from the entertainment, the visual entertainment side have come in yeah. versus it being based in comics and then expanding into the visual. It's been like the reverse a lot. And so from what I understand of modern cons, it's it's this different sort of event, you know, where you're talking about all kinds of pop culture sort of um, involvement of uh, the comic book characters and things. And that, of course, existed, but not to this extent. So I feel like if I start going to cons now, it's a different experience, a less intimate experience with the comic books and more about the wowness of that ecosystem yeah. that's been created over the last 30 years. So in my mind, I'm able to compare, but in terms of in the physical sense, I don't actually have a comparison because I haven't been to modern cons. But back in the day, I want to talk about the smaller shows because that's what I remember the most, right? And I'll just get out of the way. The, the last con that I actually remember was 1997. It was called WonderCon, which is like a, a franchise that still exists, if I understand. Yeah, it's a big one. And it was at the Marriott Convention Center in Oakland, California. And I think that's right. And it was on Broadway. It's still there. And I've told part of this story before. I, I don't remember if I went with my mother and father or my mother. Um, could have been either way, but she would have definitely had taken me and enjoyed herself while we were there. And um, I have some of the, you know, signed um, things from that event, so on and so forth. But the smaller shows, man. Can I can I just say, like, big, big fucking props to your mom for taking you to shows. Sweet. Big yeah. props. Like, I, I come from a fa- oh, man, we could even go into this, but I come from a family of my mom would take me to comic shops. Yeah. And my dad would take me to card shows. Yeah. And, like... I, it was never a point where anybody said, oh, you, no, no, we're not letting you go there. We're not taking you there. I love that. Yeah. So props to your mom as well, you know? Yeah. And I think if I had to put myself in their shoes, I don't want to speak for my mother. Well, we could ask her one day, but you know, I think she'd probably be like, I was happy to take him to those places because the, uh, I'm glad he wasn't doing some other stuff that I wouldn't have wanted him to, you know, that Dude, kind of thing. Yeah, it's hugely supportive move. And like, look, if it wasn't for stuff like that from our parents, we might not be sitting here talking about this stuff 100%. to each other. We wouldn't. We wouldn't. No, yeah. we wouldn't. Yeah. We literally, I literally reconnected with, I, I separated the we from the I because I think our you don't have as large a middle in your now from your youth that you left collecting. I have this large yeah. void where I left collecting for a while, right? So I was reconnecting with who I was when I was younger and obviously my parents allowing me to and taking me to these places formed who I was when I was younger, right? Without that, without them being so willing and just okay with it, I wouldn't be this person today. And so, yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so a moment to say thank you to our parents yeah. for that and our moms for that yeah. and our dads, you know, so... I love that. Mo no, Dave, I love that moment. Thank you to the moms. Thank you to mom and dad, both Dave's and mine. That's awesome. Shout out to the parents. Yeah. So these smaller shows. I remember there's a, there's a small town. I don't know if it's a small town, but it's called Fairfield. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, people in the Bay Area know about Fairfield and Vacaville. 
And there used to be a comic book shop because I had family in Fairfield. So we used to go visit my aunt. And there used to be a comic book shop called Spidey's Comics, I think was the name of it. I remember the strip mall, very like, um, you know, not fancy. It just just a, a bunch of businesses in a straight row in a parking lot. And mm-hmm. Spidey's Comics was sort of smack dab in the middle. And I remember going to the shop anytime I would be visiting my family in Fairfield and Vacaville. Like, again, shout out to the parents, shout out to the aunts and uncles that would take you to these places because they know you're going to be super annoying if you stay at home and listen to the grown folks do grown folks stuff. <laughs> Being a part of that community by extension, because I would be visiting my family there a lot, I remember seeing the flyers and hearing about local card shows and local comic book shows. And Dave, you and I, we talk about this. See, back then, cards and comics weren't like separated the way they are now. No. You know? Yeah, they were together. They were together. If you were a kid collecting comics in the 90s, you were opening a couple packs behind that counter while you were checking out your comic books. Oh, yeah. You know, it was two bucks for a pack. It was two bucks for a book. You were doing both. And 1990... It hits, and we, we're looking for Ken Griffey Jr. rookie cards in Upper Deck, oh, yeah. come on, or 89, whatever year it was. Dude, the junk wax error was a great time. Only in retrospect was it devastating. <laughs> it was a great time. And once we started to grow up in the 90s as well, or I, I guess you you were already in your teens before me, but there were certain like athletes that were super cool. You know, there were mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant, Allen Iverson, you know, like Kevin mm-hmm. Garnett, like all of, even though I wasn't a huge sports guy, those personalities were admirable, larger than life. They were celebrity figures that I recognized, looked up to, and wanted to get their rookie cards out of packs. Yeah. And I'll, I'll throw, you know, obviously Jordan, but I'll throw Shaq into the mix right there. Come Ken, on. And, yeah. and Griffey Jr. and Deion Sanders. I mean, it's, you know, it's all these guys that we looked up to because, right, they're larger than life. Absolutely right. You know, and so that the community, you would go to a shop that would sell the sports cards, the comic book cards, the comic books. And then and then it started to creep into the uh, the TCGs because mm-hmm. that very comic book shop, Spidey's Comics. I remember when the back half of the shop started to turn into those white long fold-up yeah. tables. And it was tournament-style situations like for hours and hours and hours out of the day. So comic book guys would be at the front of the shop saying, let me see that book, let me see that <laughs> book. And the people that didn't care about comics, there was some crossover, but there was definitely an audience that did not care about comics at all, but was playing Magic the Gathering all day and all night. They did not care about the wall books. Dude. And to think like if the magic people have ever felt, you know, vindicated, it's now where like, you you know, they can make all this money off magic when they're originally designated to the fucking back of the shop to play. Now they're at the front of the shops. That's so true. So it is pretty interesting how that shifted. But you're right, dude. There was a there was a comic shop by me. I can't remember the name because it didn't last that long. But I remember when they shifted that back room to yeah. to to magic. And yeah. you know, I was like, what is this? And it was the smelliest fucking part <laughs> of the store. Dude, I felt I felt a little even at I don't remember how old I was when that shift started to take place. But I did feel a little weird about it. I was like, what's happening to my comic book stores? Like, what are these games these kids are playing that I don't know, you know? And then right. I figured it out. I didn't, I didn't actually become a fan of, the, uh, of participating. It wasn't my thing. It didn't, it didn't pull me. But 
I did know, even then, the Black Lotus was rare and valuable already. <laughs> and, I, and being who I was, I was like, I want a Black Lotus. Like, how do I get a Black Lotus card? <laughs> because people are talking about this you thing. You wanted the Black Lotus card and you probably wanted a Lotus to drive and, you know. Well, there was a point in time where I did think Lotuses were, this is a tangent, but you remember Pretty Woman. Oh, yeah. And he rented a Lotus and it was Julia Roberts that was like, I'll show you how to drive that thing. And I just remember that very well. Um, so anyway, yeah, Lotuses. And, but, and also I spoke to you about my connection with Silver Age books. It's not as though I had them in my collection, but th- that comic store, man, I actually am going to start Googling pictures because there's another shop in Fairfield I want to talk about in a second. Maybe someone listening to this can tell me what that was. But I remember that comic shop, Spidey's in particular, they used to have uh, maybe even AF-15s, but they used to have like Spider-Man 1s and and you know the 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 early Spider-Man books and Amazing Spider-Man fifty and all of these things on the wall. Yeah, and that's when my appreciation for them began because I there's obviously a difference between the books that you can just grab off of a table and the ones that are behind the counter on the wall, and just the price tags were fascinating because as a as a young kid for a book to be fifteen thousand twenty five thousand it's just the m- most it's jaw dropping yeah. right. And so I remember all of that stuff. But in any case, I remember one show in particular, and it was at a community center, probably in Fairfield. And most towns, most like suburban towns have these community centers where it's like in the middle of a park where you would go to do your picnics or family events and Mm -hmm. walk your dog and play tennis or soccer or whatever. And there would usually be like a brown building with a domed tiled roof. And you can use it for whatever you want to use it for, yeah. rent it for a family event, or have small, dark card shows in it. <laughs> and I used to go to this card show, and it would pretty much be, I don't know if it was exactly a split, but there was a fair representation of sports and comic book cards, because the culture was such that all cards were hot. Yeah. Everyone was collecting cards of all kinds. It's not like the division now, where sports and Pokemon are everything in cards and marvel is like this quiet community that you and i participate mm-hmm. in because we know the you know community and i just remembered this 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 is my kind of show and if shows like this and my mother took me to that and if shows like this would happen i don't know they just make me feel so good where it was packed really small not well lit and you just take your time from table to table mm-hmm. looking for the things that you weren't able to pull out of packs and trying to make deals. I remember trading cards. I remember Pogs were present at this time as well. They had a presence at these shows, and they were cool, man. Trading Slammers, trading Pogs was dope. From that particular show that I'm actually you know, pulling memories from right now is where I bought the 1993 Marvel Universe Skybox hologram where it's um, you got to hold the card in landscape mode, mm-hmm. and it's Venom and Spidey. But it's like, it's when holograms first became what that hologram is, where you can tell there's like a clay aspect of it that was sculpted and photographed. And then the dimensionality was added. It's very cool. It's not like a highly digitized hologram or a refined version of the method. It's the first of the great. Because there were some before that looked one-dimensional, very plain, kind of boring, like 90MU. Hugely valuable, but not awe-inspiring visually. 
this one was the first I remember to actually punch me in my face. Yeah, that that was when they started to use clay and they sculpted it instead of using a two D dimension and try to a two dimensional image to try and make it look three D. And then from there, yeah, they I saw a picture of that original sculpt recently. It's in, it's crazy looking. I don't think it still exists, but I saw a a picture of it from that year. Well, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so my mother bought me my personal copy that I have. I did not pull it from a pack. It was purchased for me by my mother at that card show probably in 1993. Dude, in 1993, I'm eight. Wow. Yeah, I'm I'm 13 going on 14. But isn't that amazing? Like, those are the most important things for me. And now I'm putting date stamps on it. It might have been nine, but... This is before my teenage years. This is before I'm even 10 that I'm falling in love with these things, paying attention to them. My mother's recognizing that I'm really digging this stuff mm-hmm. and she's, you know, joining me on these these small adventures. That's my last involvement with conventions and I'm perfectly fine with it. That's going to change next year. Dave, you know this. Yeah. I'm going to join you at a couple of shows because um, I want to come to New York. So I'm looking forward to that. This year, we're not going to do that. You're going to be there and you're going to have a blast. Next year, hopefully I join you. But um, even if that weren't to happen, I love remembering my experiences at conventions in the way that I already do. 20, sorry, 30 years removed (laughs) from the actual events. But they have a very special, warm place in my heart and... I don't care if I ever add to that, but I I do believe that we're going to. And they're going to be cool memories as well to look back on in the future. I think for where we live, respectively, small shows don't really exist in the way that those memories would. But I think if you go a little bit towards the center of the country, you still get that vibe at a lot of these kind of smaller shows, you know, but... I used to go to New York Comic Con at the Javits Center before it was the beast that it is now. And I used to go to, sure. to Big Apple Con, which was held at the the Pennsylvania Hotel, I believe, across the street from Madison Square Garden, which also had a different vibe. That show in the early 2000s was the comic show. Like, even despite that it was the beginning of like the comic book movie boom, it was a place that people cared about comics. But they did mesh the two together because that's the first time I met Frank Miller was at that show. Mm-hmm. And it was either right. It was right before Sin City was coming out in theaters. And it was like I was meeting Frank Miller for the first time. And it was the coolest thing. And he was so fucking nice. Nice. So Big Apple Con was run by a maniac, this dude that dressed up like the Joker. But he his name was Mike. I forget his last name. I met Adam Hughes there for the first time. And I had mentioned that show to him. Uh, when I saw him last week and we had a good chuckle about it. But uh, growing up on Long Island, we had shows in every town, you know, like hotel shows, uh, Nassau Coliseum, where the New York Islanders played. They had a, a comic and card show, which was pretty big, but it was still very centric to comics and cards. Uh, it's where I met Stephen Platt for the first time. It's also where I met Hall of Famer uh, legend hockey player Gordy Howe. But dialing it back to the Sons of Italy show on Deer Park Avenue. where I grew up in a town called Deer Park on Long Island. Deer Park Avenue is this like uh, main road that stretches all the way to one southern end of the island to the northern end of the island. 
Okay. But in my town, there was a Sons of Italy. So think about like a VFW hall, but for Italian people and not veterans. I don't know. It's a community center for Italians. Okay. Whatever it is. It's a bunch. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, it's just this big ballroom. Community center for Italians. <laughs> well, so Deer Park is a very Italian town. And Long I got Island, it. I you got know, it. Yeah, it wasn't Island. actually for, a, you know, oh, yeah. only it, it, it just what it became because of the community. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, it was called Sons of Italy, which I guess it was started by Sons of Italy instead of Sons of Anarchy. But it was this ballroom that was maybe, I don't know, like you could fit. 30 dealers in there maybe 20 to 30 dealers and it was it was a rectangle so you walk in through the double doors had a specific smell you could tell it was built in the 70s so it was like a lot of oak it was really beautiful inside and you just made a, a like a rectangular circle motion around the room uh it was cut down the middle so there were tables down the middle too but i cut my teeth in this place i mean i i cut my teeth as a as a person that collected and bought, uh, I'm I'm almost certain, I would say about 95% certain that my current PC copy of ASM 300 was purchased at that show. Oh, nice. The newsstand one you had. The newsstand one that I have 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, and um, through that, I became friends with uh, my, one of my LCS store owners, Mike Bradley, who, Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, but he owned a store called Collector's Kingdom. And through him, I met his roommate, Larry, who is still one of my closest friends to this day. I used to go, it was, I think, I don't want to be wrong, but there's probably wrong. It was like the first Thursday of every month that they had the show. Okay. When I was like 14, 15, 16, I was doing tables at that show. Oh, really? You started setting up. Yeah, like me, and I think it was like one of my buddies. We just like, it was like 40 bucks. And since I lived a mile away at most, my parents would drop me off there. I'd bring my boxes of cards and comics and just sell. Yeah. I have the memories of doing it. I have no memory of like how much money I made, but I never lost money because my parents would not let me keep doing it. If I would come home and be like, I didn't make any money. It was more like I'd sell so much stuff and then buy more stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it was such a good vibe. And I, I grew up in pieces of the baseball card show scene in Long Island because of that show. And then a, a weekend, uh, it was every weekend. There's a flea market in Levittown called Tri-County Flea Market. It's actually next to the, the school that my mom taught at until she retired. And uh, every weekend, I would go upstairs like Saturday. When, and this is I was already able to drive. I was six, you know, 17 years old. And I would hang out with this dude, Jay, and I'd sit at his table and help run it with him. Uh, yeah, I was always around the cards and comics scene at shows but those smaller shows it was a community feeling yep you know it was like it was like what we're part of now on on in our community except mm-hmm. physical you know that's a great way to look at it it's almost like our instagram friends you know when you find your tribe yeah that's what those small shows felt like because they were so 
personal. They were so intimate. They were, and they smelled really bad, but they were. That, not the bad smelling part, but I was just, the intimate shows remind me of the Berkeley, the Berkeley show that happens. Right. I do go to the Berkeley show from time to time, and I like it. Small, com- no cards there. Well, maybe there might be in the future, but just books. But fun little vibe. I go in there, I kill an hour or two, I get out of there, it's fun. Yeah, and you get all the local stores, you know, Bronze Age Batcave's always there, and a lot of those local people are always there. From what I understand, and I'm sure some of our SoCal friends are listening to this, Near Mint Sundays is supposed to be that pure comic book show in Southern California. Heard about that show, yeah. yeah. I've been asked a couple of times if I ever want to do a table, and I, I would love to, but it's 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 putting too much money into the cost of me going that I would have to make a lot of money to break even on that show. Dave, I gotta talk to you about this. Speaking about cons, I've talked about this before, but never with someone that sets up. Dude, the sort of person I am. Yeah. Let's say I was entertaining the thought of setting up at a show. Let's say I had the sort of inventory that I would, you know, set up at a show. I, I There's people that show up with thousands of books, right? Yeah. Th- those are the people that I want to talk about. I mean, I can set up at a show. It just wouldn't be, I wouldn't have the biggest setup, right? Right. But even with how many books that I would be bringing, how do you guys get over the stress or the anxiety or the concern of transporting these things back and forth and back and forth? Dude, just the way that I think bumps on the road, I'm thinking, I'm fucking every book. Every book is getting fucked. <laughs> um. You know, if you know what you're doing, you pack it tight enough that nothing can move. But, you know, don't forget, everything's going to be in boxes. Everything's going to be bagged and boarded. The important stuff is going to be in slabs. I put that stuff in my front seat. But you get everything that you buy and sell through the mail. It's going through far more abuse in that situation than in your car from point A to point B. Uh, Yeah, I think it's just it seems like it's a lot it's a lot more dangerous than it is. Um, but I thought you were going to go a different direction. Where? Where'd you think I was going to go? The stress and anxiety of prepping for a con oh. is like, woo. Well, because remember, you have to re- figure out how to prep this stuff so that anybody looking at it knows how much it is, knows what it is, and can't really fuck it up. Right. So so you're double boarding books. You know, you're you're not making tight boxes because if you make tight boxes people have to pull more books out to look through them yeah you're putting your slabs on the wall behind you you're Mm -hmm. making sure that your prices are right in the right area for people to make a little bit of an offer but also to move if they just buy it for you know for full price yeah and that's where i excel at i love that this is great that i that i actually have you here to ask these questions too um i want to talk about people that fly and set up. I want to talk about how to ship. How the fuck are people shipping their books? Because um, people people will go to a con. They will fly to a different city. Yeah. Fill up a short box and ship the fucking short box back. I mean, I know how to do it. You got to put a box in a box. Or if you're buying books that are not super high value, but you bought like a whole run of something, you could get away with bubble wrapping it. But if you're going to a con and you're buying a short box of books and you're worried about getting it back, you just buy another suitcase. That's all you got to do. Don't be cheap about it. Check it in as a as a suitcase and actually check it in? No, because if, if it's a short box, it will fit in a carry-on. So it becomes your care. Wow. Yeah. A short yeah. box fits in a fucking carry-on. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen people do it before. 
I've, I have actually seen people, I didn't pay very much attention because I wasn't planning on doing it, but I do remember some people in the convention scene turning like a rolling, turning it into like a rolling carry-on situation, their short yeah. box. And I think they do use it as a carry-on. So there you go. So that, that makes sense. I'm connecting that with something. Let's say someone's perusing the books that you have at, available at a con. Mm-hmm. How often do people actually ask to see the back of the book out of a bag and board? At SummerCon this year, three days, I had maybe, maybe, maybe two people take asked to take books out. Why do people not care about seeing the back of the book? There is a piece of inherent trust that you have when you're buying books in person that the price is going to reflect the grade. I think that's what it is. I think if you price your books to move, people don't give a shit. Personally, for this guy right here, the way I sell my books... Over the internet is the same way I sell my books in person. You flip that book around, you're, you're going to look at an approximate grade on back. So trusting of the way that it's graded and priced according to what you will see when you examine the book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if somebody asked to look at a very high value book to see the back, I wouldn't let them take it out. I would take it out. Mm-hmm. But Oh, that's a good, that's a, okay, yeah, of course. Yeah. Why? You're talking multi-thousand-dollar raw or even a multi-hundred-dollar raw. You don't want to put yourself in a situation where the potential buyer makes a mistake. He's just going to, he or she's going to apologize and you're going to just feel like shit. So if someone's (laughs) going to fuck something up, it might as well be us, you know, if, if, but hopefully not at all. But there's just a piece of inherent trust. I mean, I've swung and missed on a couple of books that I bought in person without looking at them. But at the same time, like the law of averages, I'm going to, I'm going to, hit a home run more times than I'm not because I know what I'm looking at. Case in point, all the books that I bought from uh, RKFA Comics at Rose City this weekend, I wasn't looking at grades. I was just pulling books out. I'm like, I want this. I want this. I want this. All those Batman 423s that I bought. Yeah. I knew they were all kind of mid-grade-ish. I didn't give a shit because I got a great deal on them. Yeah. You're buying in bulk. So that is the game of the averages right there. Yeah. 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 But if you're making a big purchase at a con or at a store or whatever, and you have a chance to look at that book, look at that book. Oh, I always look at the book. But if you're buying a $20 book or $15 book or a five, it doesn't matter. If that person is saying this is a high-grade book and they're, you know, they're displaying it as a high-grade book in a, in a priced box of high-grade books, you don't have to take every book out. But if you're looking at a $200 book or a $100 book, yeah, sure. Ask to look at the book. Can't sure. hurt. Yeah. And it depends on what your objectives are. If you're buying a near mint book because you're happy having a near mint raw, you're probably going to nail it. But if you're buying that near mint book because you're thinking there might be an outside shot in a 9.8 and that's the only way you want to buy it, well, then you have to investigate it because a 9.6 would be a failure on your objective. And therein comes a little bit of Manu and Dave in one thing. You talk about taking those swings when you look at a book online because it looks like it could be a high grade, you know, that turns into a 9.8. Right. Right. A little tip for my friends, most stores that are selling high-grade raw books and they don't sell graded books, you should be buying those books from stores. Oh, there are nine eights in those boxes. There's tons of nine eights in those boxes. Yeah. like Hell yeah. They're buying collections and they're putting them out raw. They're grading them as high grade, pricing them reasonably. It's a comic book store. You might be able to get it for 20 on eBay. It's 35 at the store. It doesn't matter because it might be a $400 nine eight. They are in those boxes. Yeah. And I, I would love to at one point, me and you, this is not for anybody else because Manu doesn't want to hang out with you, but I would like. <laughs> <laughs> I have social anxiety, my friends. And if you love me. You, you sympathize. 
or you empathize or something. Empathize, yeah, no, no. Uh, but one day I would love to, you know, when I'm down in your area or if you're up in mine, to just go to a couple stores with you and like see what you could find. Use you as the fucking canine and watch you go yeah. to work on these. Like, I'll pull books out and be like, what do you think? You know? Yeah. Because I, I bet you we could do some fucking damage. I have pulled nine eights. I still go to, even though I don't go to cons, I go to comic book shops. It's fun, yeah. you know? And it's never like planned. It's like a Wednesday. It's like, oh, it's 3 p.m. The shop closes at 5. Fuck it. Let's go. You know? <laughs> like, all I got to do is put some shoes on. Yeah. And you will. You will find like amazing Spider-Man run McFarlane books that are like 10 bucks, but they're straight up nine eights. You know, if you wanted to grade it, it's a fucking nine eight. Those are in those boxes all day. And it's the same thing that I, that I, the same tactic that I look for because I find Mark Jewelers at every store I go to. Yep. So. Yep. But yeah, the the con thing is, I mean, I, I miss the old school cons. I don't love comic cons as much as I used to. Rose City was a nice compromise of having a bigger con that did have a lot of like nonsense, but had a, a bunch of comics dealers and then a lot of comic creators. I want to tell you a story about something that happened to me. I want to say it was about probably like 93, 94, whenever okay. Ro- Rob Liefeld put out Supreme Number 1 with Image Comics. So it was probably 93, mm-hmm. 94. My oldest friend, Seth, who I grew up collecting comics with, we went to the Jacob Javits Center in New York for what was the early iteration of New York Comic Con. It was a far cry from what it is now. It was a the big Comic Con in New York, but it was before movies. It was just comics. And we went to that show by ourselves, like our parents let us take the train in or whatever. We're walking around and we used to just meet everybody. We would get autographs. We met, you know, Boris Vallejo. I remember we'd get cards signed by him and like all these creators that we loved. But it was when the image guys first kind of started showing up at shows all together and they had an image booth. So we walk over to the image booth and I don't remember specifically who was there. I remember Jim Lee was there. But it might have been like Wills Portacio and Jay Lee, like the guys of that ilk. There was no Todd there. There was no Eric Larson. And they were selling copies of Supreme Number 1 gold embossed edition. So it was whatever. You know, it was limited yeah. probably to 720. It was 90s. It was 90s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And as we're buying the books, because it was the only place to get the books, we noticed like from behind the curtain out walked Rob Liefeld. Okay. And since me and my friend Seth, we collected autographs together. We went autograph hunting and hockey and all these different things. We're we're very aware of when somebody is there and we see somebody and nobody else noticed. And I was like, oh, shit, there's Rob Liefeld. And I said, hey, Rob. Unbeknownst to me, 13 year old or whatever, Dave, who was like five foot nothing because I didn't hit my growth spurt until I was like 16 or something. So I'm like tiny Dave who looks 10. There's like 50 (laughs) overweight dudes behind me and they heard me say Liefeld and they fucking rushed the booth. (laughs) But it was scary rushed the booth. It was like riot. You know, and Liefeld saw it. He saw it all happen. He's like, get under the table. And he like pulled us under the table because the table got pushed forward. Like the whole boot. Oh, yeah. Shit. And we went, we jumped under the table and he signed our books. He's like, are you kids all right? And we're like, yeah. And 
That's amazing. I know. And I have interacted with Liefeld, I don't know, like 15 times after that, 10 times in my life after that. And every time I see him, it's always like these gaps. It's like five years, five years. I Every time I've mentioned that to him, he remembers exactly that thing happening. I even hit him up. I was watching one of his whatnot streams and I asked him if he remembered that because I love doing it because he doesn't know me. So every time I ask it, he has no memory of me asking it four or five times. And every time I ask, his eyes light up. He's like, yeah, I remember that. That was crazy. <laughs> That's the best connection. Yeah. That is so fucking awesome dude that's hella cool you and rob liefeld share that and i don't think it could be any more uniquely dope like getting rushed because someone heard you scream it under the table he remembers it that's special yeah it was and we got our comic sign and you know i i i did sell those unfortunately because i there was one point where i just kind of sold everything that i that wasn't my asm todd run but uh that memory's still there and all you know nothing gets rid of the memory nothing gets rid of the memory every time you see Liefeld still you're going to be able to bring that up and he's going to be like I fucking remember that I've never told that story before because I I have a lot of stories we'll sprinkle a couple in every now and then exactly Exactly. you know we've got years worth of little things that'll pop up into our memory and we'll decide to narrate something that was a really fun story before we wrap this episode up yeah I want to dive back into these comic book stores in the 90s, because as I was thinking about Fairfield and Vacaville, I keep bringing these towns up. Yeah. There's a mall in Fairfield called Solano Mall, because I think the county is Solano County. It is. How do you know this stuff? Because I know <laughs> I know Flying Colors in Fairfield. I Dave, when I stay in Walnut There's Creek. There's a Flying Colors in Fairfield? I know the Flying Colors in Walnut Creek. Uh, is it considered Walnut Creek? I thought it was Fairfield. Oh, no, that's Walnut Creek. Okay. That's only a couple blocks away from where you stay with your friend. Yeah, over with there. Dave. Dave okay, well, I know where... F- I, don't mean, I don't know where Dave lives. I didn't mean that to sound creepy. I just know he's in that he area. He lives at... Uh, yeah. But, uh, but no, I know Fairfield. I know Solano because Solano's where the flea market is. Yeah, anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to... No, no, that's all right. I think, it's, I think it's great that you even know those names because you're probably more geographically aware of my area than I am because you know me. Yeah, because you live in New Jersey. Exactly right. And it doesn't fucking matter where anything is. <laughs> and so, and so the Solano Mall had a comic book store. It was, on, it was on the second floor. You know how these malls used to be structured? There's a big oval yep. on top of a big oval. Yep. And each oval has these branches that exit out into parking lots. That's right. And there's an escalator every like 500 or 600 feet or whatever. Yeah. And JCPenney and Sears have ends That's of right. these ovals, right? And so anyway, one of these corridors on the top floor that would lead you to an exit to an outside parking area, there was this comic book store. And there was never a time that I've gone to that mall and not went into this comic book store. But the point that I'm making is it was dark and it was <laughs> dope and it was floor to ceiling. It was almost like comic books meets Spencer's. Oh, wow. Or something like that. It had that sort of electricity. It had that sort of vibe. It had that sort of pride. They're not like that anymore. And that wasn't the only one like that. And again, in Fairfield, in a strip mall, but in this cool carved out corner of the strip mall, the way that I remember it, where doors on an angle you know, like a interestingly cut connection of buildings and shops. There was an elite comic book store the way I remember it. And the reason I call it elite 
is because it had those glass tall cabinets with huge painted statues in it. And the statues were hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. I remember seeing the Venom ones in there. Like this is in the 90s when as a child, I'm for the first time seeing my favorite characters huge at a price point that I can't afford, but being mesmerized. Like who the fuck buys these things, you know? Like are they just eye candy or do people actually come in here and say, I'll take that $2,500 carnage. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? But since the 90s, I have never stepped foot into any comic book stores that felt like they did in the 90s. And that's not an accident. They were more popular then. Sure. They were a destination. They are only a destination now with the actual people where comics still live in their heart. It's not the way that it was where any random person walking through a mall would turn into the comic book store as well. Yeah. Sorry, I just started remembering the way it felt to spend time in these shops, even when you're not buying just to be in there. Like, you know how cool it is for a musician or an artist to go into Guitar Center? Yeah. That's how comic book stores used to feel. Comic book stores, to a certain extent, are still like that now, but they're, nah. You kind of go there for a very personal experience. You don't go there for the overall experience, I think, now. For the most part, I agree with you. There are some shops, there are, you know, there are a handful, a lot of shops that I've been to that feel like that. I can, you know, Iguana Comics, Bronze Age Batcave, but they are few and far between, and I, I, we will talk about comic stores throughout the entirety of the existence of this podcast because it's a big part of both of who we are. And I I like to boast that I've been to over 60 shops in the last three years up and down the West Coast because I have. And I make that like kind of a central part of my pitch when I talk to people about the YouTube channel. But I agree with you. They were more mainstream and they were, yeah. they were everywhere. But I do want to kind of, yeah, I guess eulogize-ish. I want to I want to just talk about Ancient Comics, which is a store up in Burien, Washington, just south of Seattle, north of me. They, he, Jeff, the owner, closed on Thursday for, for, mm. for now. But his plan- I saw it on your story. Yeah. yeah. It's not as sad of a story, uh, only because he's planning, he's moving to Thailand He's coming back in three years. He says he's going to open up in a new location and and oh. fucking you know destroy it. It kind of goes along with very recently Jim Hanley's Universe in New York, one of the tentpole comic shops to exist in the last forty years in New York, just closed up. He just closed up his uh, New York Manhattan location, and they're just going to keep their Staten Island location open. But it's just an unfortunate piece of this world, this economy all of it about uh, small businesses that we've been saying for the last 15 years. And I said this to a couple people on my channel, comic stores, very much like record stores, are kind of the, the last piece of the wild, wild west of independently owned businesses that have character. Character. Yeah. 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 Like every comic store has its own feel, its own character. We can talk about what we like about specific stores because they have those characteristics like you know i i know you're a fan as well as uh 
my friend Dan, uh, you're both fans of Blue Moon Comics. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm friends with Damon, who owns Bronze Age Batcave. I think that's an experience, that story, because you walk in there and you're just overwhelmed with the amount of good books to look at. Oh, then I have to go. See, that's just something that my eyes haven't been open to. I know them. I've done business with them. I've never actually been to their physical location. I have to. Yeah, because it is an eye opener. It's legitimately, it's the definition of an eye opener because their wall, their wall books extends around almost the entire store. And then they have a private uh, a, a room they call the vault that's all slabs. What these days is keeping comic book stores in business? Is it pull lists? Is it people with monthly subscriptions to a number of titles? Is it what is it that they're selling regularly through the storefront? I would say you're right about it being multiple answers for the comic stores that exist for people like us, for, you know, our friends. Uh, it's the fact that there are it's only back issues or it's mainly back issues for the the Wednesday warrior, as they call them. It is the subscription service, the pull boxes. But then the other thing is the uh, the peripherals. No, what's what's that called? The merch. I don't oh, know. The ancillary items. What's ancillary? The ancillary. I don't even so know. So <laughs> it's it's Funko. It's anime manga. It's Pokemon cards. Those are the things that keep comic book stores afloat these days. It's kind of sad, but that's yeah. what it is. The toys and stuff. Yeah, but it's it really is the Funkos, the Pokemon, and the manga. Those three things are the highest selling of all comic stores. They'll each one's different, but each one I'll tell you it's one of those three things. So if you wanted to open up a comic book store for some reason other than just to satisfy your inner child that would love to own a physical comic book store, and you decided that I'm just thinking out and you decided that you only wanted to focus on like 90s nostalgia. Oh no. It's not going to work. <laughs> you would get crushed under your own weight of X-Force 1s and Exo Manowar number zeros. <laughs> yeah, you're still going to be doing all of your business online and you're just yeah. going to be like do doing it for yourself paying the rent on that location, you know. Isn't there that? are some places that can sustain a comic shop. They're very few. The owners have to know what they're doing, but uh you know, it, it really is the point of owning a comic book store other than that is to be the place where collections walk into. You don't have to go out and find collections. Right. They come to you. Yeah. But that's about it. I've thought about it, but it's it's something that I would really need to focus on having. Like there is a small shop that is close to my house. They are a Lego shop that was started by like a seven-year-old and his parents basically let him open the store. They, they did it. The fuck? If that. Yeah, it's just like kind of like urban legend, great thing. It's been around for four or five years, but I, I so I he's think, a whole twelve now. Yeah, he's something like that, like twelve <laughs> or thirteen. If they ever decide to close that shop, I'm gonna try and jump on that thing because it's like the size of it's like a ten by twelve shop. It oh, would be like perfect it. as like a appointment only comic shop. Maybe have like weekend hours and then do my claim sales from there. That's actually kind of dope. Bring your collections in. I'll assess them here. I'll pay you on the spot if I want to take them. If you want to make an appointment to review a very expensive book, meet me here, whatever the case might be. Exactly. Exactly. That would be the only kind of dream because, man, I don't even want to get into it too deep, but uh, just over the last six months in my area, in the greater Tacoma, Seattle area, almost every comic shop was broken into. Oh, that's the other concern. And we don't have, yeah, we don't have to talk about it. But it's just the same way if you opened up a sneaker shop or a boutique clothing shop 
anything that you give a shit about, how, just knowing that people don't give a fuck and there's a chance that something like that could happen is it makes my heart sink even without it happening. Just the thought of it or my stomach sink, whatever the word, you know. Yeah. It's fucking upsetting. Man. It is. There's no repercussions for theft anymore, really. And I, I, I was having this conversation with another comic book store owner in my ho- in my house in my area, and uh, <laughs> Mirror <a> Dave. <laughs> and uh, I was saying like, there's no middle ground anymore. It was like the old days, and I'm talking like Hammurabi shit, where it was like you steal, they kill you, or they cut your hands off. And now it's you steal, they don't do anything. There's no middle ground anymore. They don't. They make a video of you, and then they. They go viral because they posted the video. And so they're like, oh, this is fantastic. My video of you stealing from me has 10 million views. Look at yeah. me. I'm famous the, on TikTok. You're the most popular person on the internet now. And you're a criminal. It's, it, and I want to talk about comic book stores in another episode because, like I said, you've been to a bunch. I've been to a bunch. We grew up going to them. Yeah. And e- even in that, I could tell you about five stores that I was a, a local at, uh, you know, in my in my in Long Island. So... Uh, and and everywhere I've gone, I've had an LCS up until now, where I kind of, I kind of really don't have that because now Ancient Comics just closed. Yeah, but uh, man, I, there's still so much emotion, and uh, there's still so much good memories that come from the card show, comic show scene, and 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 the comic shop scene. Before we end this one. We are obviously going to have more episodes, but there's no way that we can have an episode reflecting on the night for me personally, reflecting on the 90s and not mention this very elegant, upscale looking shop that these two people, kind people, opened up in Richmond, California at Hilltop Mall. The mall is now closed down. I believe, you know, in the last like 15 years, they anyway, it's closed down. Yeah. But in this mall in the 90s, there was a, a comic book store that opened on the second floor next door to KB Toy Store. <laughs> and it was called Legends of Sports and Fantasy, if I remember correctly. And it's not the dark, electric, fun place that I was describing from a different mall. This was beautifully designed, beautifully occupied, the space. It was a big space, but there was not one of those big spaces in like... You know, when you go to malls that recently malls are closing down, so they're just like, rent out this whole left side of this mall for yeah. free. Yeah. And then and then you walk into a shop and there's nothing for miles and there's like one table there. This is like this odd feeling of like emptiness. No, this place was huge and packed. Posters, comic books, floor to ceiling, glass displays, sports cards, everything you could imagine. A really fun almost luxurious experience when you're comparing comic store to comic store. So shout out to that shop opening up kind of right before the end of shops for a while. And they were definitely around for a few years. And I had a lot of amazing experiences. Amazing packs of cards were opened at that shop. Comic books were purchases. Posters were purchases. Purchased. Friends and I hung out there. We'd meet there after school. People from different schools would come to the mall. I mean, that's the mall where you, you know, flirt with girls, get your shoes, and go to the comic book store. I hope the two gentlemen that ran that place, I hope they're happy and healthy and living a wonderful life because uh, that was incredible. Legends of sports and fantasy. 90s Hilltop Mall. Memories are flooding back to me. Yeah. To our listeners, we're going to have more conversations about comic stores, but we're also we're also going to have conversations about malls 
because we are the generation that grew up in shopping malls for better Fuck or for yeah. worse. We are. For better. I fucking love shopping malls. They're, yeah, they man. were so awesome. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to be said about that. As two people, I want to I'm going to speak for both of us. Please. For as as two people that have just shared all of these experiences uh, of being part of a scene or a store or a, a show, I hope that everybody gets a chance at some point in their lives, if they haven't already, to enjoy this in some way, shape, or form. Because it, it, despite it shrinking, there's still chances for you to go enjoy a comic book show that is more comics than anything else. Mm-hmm. Or there is a chance for you to go enjoy a comic book shop where the owner knows who you are and, and you can dig around and you could sit in there for five hours, whether you buy something or not. Because this is what shaped us as collectors, as fans, as readers, as art appreciators. Like we had a chance to be around this on a regular basis and it's a fucking beautiful thing. And I, I just hope that everybody gets a chance to enjoy this at some point because that it still exists and don't think that it doesn't. You just have to look a little harder. You might have to drive a little further and and support your local shop or your local show because it's the only way to keep it from dying completely. Everything that Dave just said. This is our blood, Manu. This is what we love. This is, we, we just shared an hour and five minutes worth of these stories that we're just chipping away at a huge iceberg. And, you know, we're both the Titanic heading right for it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Thanks for waiting on this conversation because I, I really wanted to have this. And, you know, I'm glad that I was able to cut you off from talking to me about this on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. This is the part of the podcast where I say, friends, help us. Save the clock tower. Rate the podcast. Let's go. Once this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some real shit. Manu? I know that reference. I know that reference. That's Back to the Future. That is freaking... And this has been the the movie part of this episode. <laughs> Where can they find us? If you're looking for Dave, you can find him on Instagram at West Coast Davengers and on YouTube, same name. If you're looking for me on Instagram, I'm at the 9.9 Newsstand. The podcast also has its own Instagram page. It came from the newsstand. And if you ever wanted to ask us a question, that would be the place to do it because we'll make note of it and we'll bring it up on a future episode. Oh, man, I can't wait for some of those questions to roll in. This has been an unconventional episode of It Came From The Newsstand. It was like a week ago, and I went into the barber shop, and I said I wanted a haircut, and he said, my arm's broken. And I said, your fucking arm's broken. And he was like, comic books. <laughs>